0: Welcome to the Truth Matters Podcast. I'm your host, Daryl Harrison. The Truth Matters Podcast is a production of Grace To You, the Bible teaching ministry of John MacArthur. And today my guest on the Truth Matters Podcast is the executive director of Grace To You, Phil Johnson. Phil, thanks for being back on the Truth Matters Podcast, man. How you doing? Hey, thanks for having me back. I'm doing good. So, Phil, we're here today to talk about John's new book, Jesus Unleashed, jesus unleashed and before we dive into that i want to ask you a question this is totally off script here do you think there will be people who will be offended by that title
1: yeah in fact it's the sort of title that uh, it would offend me if i didn't know what the book was about Mm yeah right because uh it implies that somehow jesus was leashed and you know we believe he's sovereign and uh, nobody puts a leash on him Mm -hmm. but uh but when you get the sense of it uh uh you understand it. It's, there are people who would love to domesticate Jesus. Mm-hmm. They would love to tone him down some and uh, present him, make him a, more like a, a house pet than Lord of the universe. And um, so we're saying, no, this is Jesus as he is presented in the New Testament, totally unrestricted,
0: unreleased, uh, not not made to suit domesticated tastes. Well, speaking about what the book is about, let's dive into that. And I got to tell you, um, I was able to read the final proof of the book and I couldn't put it down. I could not put it down. Uh, So what I'd like to do, Phil, in our time in this episode together is have you give our audience a sort of a 50,000 foot level flyover of what Jesus is unleashed about is about. And what I'm going to try to do is take our audience through each chapter of the book okay so i'm going to point out a quote or two from john from each chapter of the book and sort of take our audience through the book that way and then we'll wrap up with some final thoughts but for me personally reading through the the final proof of the book i barely got past the introduction i mean seriously it's so solid so if you don't mind i kind of want to start there okay uh so john uh begins by um telling us why he wrote the book what his motive is for writing the book and john says this quote he says, my objective in this book is to highlight the boldness and power of Jesus by examining the intensity of his interaction with the Pharisees, listening as he speaks for himself without attempting to soften or censor anything, unquote. Um, I like that. But my my question to you is not so much around why John wrote the book, but why is it that you think uh, many evangelicals today want a soft Jesus? They want to tone down Jesus. I think that's a reflection of what is like in our culture
1: um, where where although although we live in angry times where opinions are notoriously polarized and people have fierce disagreements um, somehow for some reason it, it's simply not considered polite in society today to have a discussion with someone you disagree with mm-hmm. and say, no, I disagree with you on that, or I think you're wrong, or yeah. y- your view on that is wrong, and here's why. We're just not supposed to do that. I mean, just this past week, as we're recording this, the New York Times ran an article um, in, in which they included a line that said basically they, they were telling a story about uh, some false accusations that had been made and people lost their jobs over mm-hmm. it. And um, and then the truth came to light, but the people who lost their jobs lost their jobs. And um, even though the story that was told to get them fired was false. And the New York Times says this incident highlights the, the tension that exists between someone's deeply held personal feelings and facts that don't support those feelings. Mm-hmm. And in effect, what this is the New York Times mm-hmm. are saying is that somehow how you feel about a thing trumps the truth of the right. matter, yeah. right? And um, uh, that that's impossible to reconcile a, an epistemology like that with the teaching and style of Jesus, who answered all of the falsehoods of the Pharisees and all of the uh, the, the false—the man-made rules that they observed, the the burdens that they tied up and put on other men's backs. He answered all of that with plain truth, Mm -hmm. just unvarnished, non-diplomatic statements of truth. And uh, it's a style that's not popular today. If you try to engage in public discourse— After the style Jesus himself used today, you you will be accused of being cruel or harsh or,
0: um, you know, mean. You know, I want to follow up uh, what we just quoted from John and why he wrote the book. John goes on to say, quote, it is no accident then. This is really ties into what you're talking about in your comment, Phil. John says it is no accident then that Jesus's harshest words were reserved for institutionalized religious hypocrisy, unquote. Expound on that force.
1: Yeah, and it, that's an interesting phenomenon in the New Testament, because you would think, if you look just at the culture in which Jesus lived and ministered, you would think that the ones closest to him were the devoted religious leaders who actually did have a Uh, at least in their confession of faith, in their doctrinal statements, Mm -hmm. they would have affirmed the authority of Scripture, and they believed so much that was true. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Jesus said to people, look, do what they say, not what they do. It was their hypocrisy that made them so dangerous. But you would think that Jesus would maybe treat that with kid gloves. If he was the typical diplomat... Kind of like they didn't know any better or anything like that. Yeah, he's just going to straighten out what's a minor flaw Mm -hmm. in this otherwise really good system. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't like that at all. Jesus was kind and gentle and just even described himself as meek and and gentle uh, with regard to sinners who were looking for forgiveness. Mm -hmm. These were the very people who were brutalized by the Pharisees But the Pharisees didn't get any of that gentle treatment from Jesus at all. When he dealt with them or talked to them or confronted their false teachings, he was as harsh as any Old Testament prophet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, um, so it's kind of a surprising thing if you just take the bird's eye look at Jesus, Jesus, the culture in which he ministered and, and the style with which he ministered. Uh, and And think about what he 's doing and why it it sort of catches you off guard it 's not what most of us instinctively would think we would think he 'd be he 'd be aligned with the Pharisees and maybe try to straighten out some of their quirks uh, but no, Jesus was so
0: non aligned with the Pharisees that they called him friend of sinners you know Phil just speaking about thinking about what Jesus is doing here with the Pharisees uh let me just ask you a broader question uh would you agree that uh, as believers as 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 people who are supposed to be students of God's word would you agree that we don't think enough about Jesus we don't think we 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 look at his ministry in terms of the stories we grew up with and we kind of right. see his whole ministry as a, as a, a compilation of stories that happen. We, we don't really think critically about what Jesus ministry was all about. Yeah, that's
1: right. Well, in fact, uh, there's a tendency, I think in every human heart to, to gravitate towards idolatry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, Calvin, I think famously said, the human heart is an idol factory. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so we all have that tendency And so we have a mental image of what we want Jesus to be like. And if we're not careful, if we don't let Scripture correct and shape our perception of him, and which, as you said, it's a full-time task to do that. You have to meditate on what Scripture says and pay careful attention to it, and not let the picture in your head of what I wish Jesus was like overwhelm what Scripture actually says he was like. You Mm -hmm. know, my my default imagery and I, and I try not to have images of Jesus. Right, I don't yep. want to have a mm-hmm. graven image. Yep. But the picture that comes to mind when when you ask me that is the classic picture of Jesus with little children on his knees. And you know, he's he's always nice, always approachable, always affirming, never ever rebuking or harsh towards anyone. But even in that context where the little children were coming to him the, the point of that story is Jesus' rebuke mm-hmm. to the disciples mm-hmm. who wanted to put a stop to this. Mm-hmm. So Jesus is capable of both gentleness and rebuke. And I think if you take the weight of uh, space that's devoted to the story of Christ's teaching and interaction with people in the Gospels alone, you'll find he's harsh more often than he is, you know, friendly with little children. Uh whole chapters are devoted to his diatribes against the Pharisees. Yeah. Uh and and that's an important part of his personality to, to sort of default to the idea that he's always gentle and soft spoken is I think to have an image of Jesus that
0: doesn't really comport with what scripture teaches. So let's talk about perceptions for a second here, Phil. As I was making my way finally through the end end of the introduction of uh, Jesus Unleashed, uh, John says this, I came across, I thought this was outstanding. John says, quote, what you believe about God is the most important feature of your whole worldview. It will color how you think about everything else, especially how you prioritize values, how you determine right and wrong, and what you think of your own place in the universe. That, in turn, will surely determine how you act, unquote. Talk about that. What is John saying to us here? He's, he's saying that of all, the, of all the
1: beliefs you have, your political beliefs, your philosophical ideas, uh, even your religious convictions, nothing, absolutely nothing is more important than your understanding of God. That's, that's why theology, the study of God, starts with what we call theology proper, the doctrine of God, uh, and if you have a wrong perception of God and who He is, and that includes the Trinitarian aspect of Jesus' human personality as well, uh, and if you have a wrong view of that, it's going to it's going to have uh, ramifications that that intrude on everything you do or right. think. Yeah. And and if so, if you have the wrong view of God, then the conclusions you draw about I think John says in that. Quote you just read values, your values and your behavior, pretty much everything in your life is going to be skewed by that. And and that, by the way, isn't a new idea with John MacArthur. Mm -hmm. I think it was Tozer who began his book on the, his famous book on um, the attributes Attributes of God God. and knowledge of the Holy. Is it one of those books? Mm -hmm. Uh, And Tozer wrote several things about God and having a right perspective. And he famously said that. uh, what
0: you think about God is the most important thing about you. So, Phil, now begins the flyover. Okay, so I want you to take <clears> our audience through a high-level flyover of Jesus Unleashed. So we're going to go through all eight chapters. And what I want to do here is I'm going to give the audience the, the chapter titles, and then I'm going to take a quote or two from each of the chapters to just give our audience sort of a, a, a deeper uh, construct of what Jesus Unleashed is all about. So let's start with chapter one, which is titled, When It Is Wrong to Be Nice. <laughs> I love that title, man, because it kind of fits my personality. I just, I just got to admit that. Uh, but <clears throat> it, it, in, uh, in chapter one, when it is wrong to be nice, uh, John says this quote, he says, Jesus's interactions with the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes and leading priests were marked by acrimony, not tenderness. Unquote. Is is that going to be a shock to a lot of people who read this book?
1: Yeah, I think it will be, uh, because that that is the side of Jesus that people really want to ignore. Yeah, you know, this book actually is a condensed version of an earlier book that yep. John wrote called "The Jesus You Can't yep. Ignore." Yep. Uh, the working title was "Jesus versus the Pharisees," mm-hmm. and the idea was to show that this notion that's that's been dominant in uh, public discourse for now 20 or 30 years that it's always better to be nice than to be even truthful mm-hmm. yeah. it's more important for you to say what's nice than it is to say what's true and there may be situations where that's pragmatically safe mm-hmm. you know when you're when your wife asks does this make me look fat right. you know maybe it's better to be nice than to be <laughs> yeah. to speak the truth but when it comes to when it comes to worldview issues and what we believe about Christ and what we say to other people about biblical truth it's it's always better to be truthful than to try to be nice. Uh, and you can say the truth in love. That's that's what we're commanded to do, speak the truth in love. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not wrong to aim at being nice unless you're doing it at the expense of truth. And there are some truths that will not come across as nice no matter how you frame right. them. And Jesus was the master of speaking the truth in love. It was always in love, even when it made his audience angry. Mm-hmm. That The fact that somebody gets angry at what you say is not, proof that you you weren't loving enough that's, that's i think point. the the great fallacy point. that dominates today yeah. if and we all tend to feel this way if somebody gets angry at me then maybe i wasn't maybe right. i was too harsh right. maybe i shouldn't have said that right if that kind of thinking forces you to tone down the truth or change it or back away from it or be silent about it then you're not actually speaking the truth in love because you're not speaking the truth anymore right so uh, you have to speak the truth, even if it's not perceived as loving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, you see this clearly in Scripture, where there are other commands. If you see your brother in sin, you, you go to him mm-hmm. and confront him about mm-hmm. his sin. And rarely, when you confront somebody about sin, are they going to are they going to welcome that interaction? Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that you're being unloving. Mm-hmm. The most loving thing you can do is
0: to try to win your brother, is what Jesus said. Yeah, you know when you talk about that being the most loving thing you can do, I totally agree. I'm thinking in my head uh, right now of James chapter five, verses nineteen and twenty, where James says, "If you see your brother uh, sinning and and you turn him back, let him know that turning him away from his uh, evil ways has saved his soul from death, has saved his soul from death." Yeah. So, so I think I think we we tend to gravitate towards uh, tone over truth because we tend to forget that souls are at stake. Right. that people are still dying and going to hell. <laughs> Right, and on a grand level, this is a serious problem today
1: in the church. Uh, I, I I think of people who, in fact, there have been some celebrity Christians, influential people who, who you know know the truth, who will go someplace like Brigham Young University, yeah. you know, where it's a school founded by a <clears throat> cult, and, and you realize most of the students you're speaking to are in yes. this cult. And here's an evangelical with an opportunity to give them the gospel, but instead he makes a speech that sounds like, we consider you as brothers and sisters in Christ mm-hmm. that that is not only an unloving thing to do even though it, it may on the face of it look nice mm-hmm. that's that's a total default of our duty as christians to to proclaim the gospel with clarity and boldness
0: chapter 2 of jesus unleashed titled two passovers john says this quote but by his own avowal, the Prince of Peace is no peacemonger when it comes to hypocrisy and false teaching, unquote. This is where Jesus is engaging with the money changers uh, in the temple, and uh, John puts it quite bluntly, says Jesus is no peacemonger when it comes to hypocrisy and false teaching. And what I'm finding in, the, in much of evangelicalism today, Phil, is that for all that Scripture says about false teaching, people get offended when you point out, what scripture says about false teachers. Yeah. That's right. Can that's you talk right. about that? This? this is amazing. Because
1: because, you know, going back to the earlier question, that that is where I think it's most dangerous to think that my duty above all is to be nice and mm-hmm. to come across mm-hmm. as nice. When you're dealing with dangerous false teaching, mm-hmm. that that is not the time to be to be nice in the sense that you're glossing over significant error, which is sin. Yeah. Um and you know, Jesus cleansing the temple, if you do a timeline on a harmony of the gospels, you discover he did this twice, once at the very beginning and once at the end of his earthly ministry. Mm-hmm. So his entire ministry was bracketed by these two events where he went into the temple and overturned tables and drove people out who mm-hmm. were taking advantage of poor people and and you know, profit mongers in the in the temple. Um and 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 I just know as as you do anybody who's watched what's happening in the evangelical community today, if if that had happened in the typical twenty first century evangelical environment, all the evangelical leaders would have been scolding Jesus yep. for uh, an unloving show of yep. harshness, yep. you know. Yeah. And um, and yet he began and ended his ministry with that same action, uh, and and. I think there's something very important that that we should note in that, that this was deliberate on Jesus' part. Mm-hmm. This is not something he did as a—he wasn't a reactionary who had no control over mm-hmm. his passions. Uh, but this was an expression of righteous indignation that was both deserved and and, in its own way, an expression of his love— Uh, Because if you truly love righteousness, you have to hate unrighteousness. Yes, And the two things, you cannot be separated.
0: And as I listen to you, Phil, what gets me, and I'm sure you've seen this as well on social media in particular, where you have uh, 21st century social justicians totally take this passage completely out of context and butcher it as if Jesus were some—they they apply some sort of social justice hermeneutic to what happened here, what Jesus is doing here with the money changers.
1: Yeah, and you just have to listen to Jesus' own words to to, to see what his real agenda is here. He He's concerned because they were defiling, in his words, my father's house. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about their treatment of the poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't only about that. It included that. Yep. I mean, they were taking advantage of poor people, but Jesus didn't see this primarily— as, as a matter of social justice. Mm-hmm. He saw it as a matter of impure religion, a defilement of the temple itself. And um, towards, at, the, at the very end of his ministry, when he, when he finally gives what is his harshest ever public speech against the religion of the Pharisees, he ends it by saying, now your house is left unto you desolate. He had always referred to it as my father's mm-hmm. house. And as he walks out of the temple for the last time, he says your house is left to you desolate because it wasn't only jesus walking out of the temple this was the this symbolized the departure of god's own spirit from that place and it was shortly within a few years totally leveled yeah. and destroyed and jesus had foretold all of that mm-hmm. and you you read those prophecies and the condemnation of what was going on there and you think this is not some meek mild Nice guy Mm -hmm. all the time. Right. Approach. This is this is Jesus as bold as a man ever gets standing against the the primary authorities in his own culture and speaking the truth, even though he knew he he, of course he knew very well, this is not going to win me any Mm -hmm. friends. He Mm -hmm. wasn't interested in winning friends in
0: order to influence people. He was interested in the truth. Well, I'm hoping as we move to chapter three of Jesus Unleashed that our audience is now getting a better picture of why the book is titled that Um, chapter three is titled A Midnight Interview, uh, where John says this, quote, truth doesn't defeat error by waging a public relations campaign. The struggle between truth and error is spiritual warfare, and truth has no way to defeat falsehood except by exposing and refuting error and deceit. That calls for candor and clarity, boldness and precision, and sometimes more severity than congeniality, unquote. Yeah. Talk about that, Phil. Well, that context there is, of course, the, the
1: encounter with Nicodemus mm-hmm. in John chapter mm-hmm. 3. And so here's this one Pharisee who who actually is interested in Jesus, and something in his conscience is telling him, this is a teacher from God, because mm-hmm. look at what he can do. Mm-hmm. And that's how Nicodemus introduces himself to Jesus. We know that you're a teacher from God. Uh, and he says all these good things, and he's the exception to the rule. He's a Pharisee who 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 truly seems to have a heart to learn from Jesus— And so you would think Jesus would embrace him warmly and encourage him and affirm him uh, and say, yeah, you're one of the good guys Mm -hmm. and and that. But uh, Jesus' response to him is blunt Mm -hmm. and straight to the point. Unless you're born again, you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. It's it's what most evangelicals today would say is a rude
0: response, Mm -hmm. almost a rebuff, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, that kind of reminds me where where the idea of winning someone over to Christ come from. Because I think that whole idea of winning, I think that lends itself to us taking a sort of um niceness uh as, the, as, as anything outside of that scope of niceness is rudeness, is sin, yeah. is it's unloving. Uh, you know, I think this whole idea of, w- idea of winning someone to Christ yeah. has a lot to do with that.
1: Well, there there is that verse in Scripture, and in the, in the King James says, He who winneth souls is wise. Oh. So Scripture uses that language, and, and I think it is appropriate at times, but you have to understand what it's saying. It's not right. talking about winning people by a public relations campaign. Bingo. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and public relations was never the way to spread the gospel. I mean, the mm-hmm. thing that everybody always goes to is Acts 17 and yep. Paul on Mars Hill, and look how he contextualized, and he tried to talk their language and all. But if you actually pay attention to that passage, he he is challenging their most sacred beliefs. Yep. He's in a society that prided themselves on on their, their knowledge, their, they had the world's smartest philosophers and they knew everything. And so he goes straight to the unknown God and he he sort of pokes them with what they don't know. Mm-hmm. And uh, he talks about times of ignorance and, and then he brings up the resurrection, which is the one idea that they thought was most preposterous. He did everything he could to challenge Athenian orthodoxy right. in that sermon. And it ended with you know, before he could even really finish the sermon, because they were so agitated at what he was saying. So this is even Paul on Mars Hill is not an example of you know positive public relations in order to win people. Right. But every example we have of gospel preaching in the New Testament is is bold and challenging and and confronting false ideas, false security, false faith. Uh, uh, that's that's what we're called to do. And, and y- you can do it without being—you don't want to be purposely antagonistic either. But you can't back away from the truth just because you know people will be antagonized by the truth. The goal is not to antagonize them. Right. But the goal is to
0: give them the truth, even if that antagonizes them. Well, let's talk about false faith for a second. And the question I have for you, Phil, is, is it because— many Christians today, many professing Christians, I find myself having to add that qualifier more and more often these days. Do you find that many professing Christians view Christianity as moralism? Basically just do, do this, don't do that as opposed to what the gospel truly is as it being rooted in faith in Christ uh, and heart regeneration. Uh, Do you think because we view uh, uh, Christianity as moralism in many ways, that that is what uh, what what moves us to emphasize tone, um, yeah, uh, to a great degree. Is, is that, does that make sense? What I'm yeah, saying there? No yeah. question about it. I,
1: I think the typical uh, self identifying evangelical people who who would say yes, I'm an evangelical. Uh, uh, my guess is the majority of them really don't understand the gospel well enough to to give it to mm-hmm. you in an articulate <clears throat> way, um, but and they think of winning people as a public relations uh sort of puzzle mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh how do i make this person like me and the, and the average evangelical church even the way they set up their services is seeker sensitive the idea is if we can get these unchurched people to like us mm-hmm. then they'll be open yep.
0: to jesus yeah and you don't find that in scripture that's kind of where i was going with the whole winning question uh yeah. so i appreciate you giving clarity to that yeah you, they, like it,
1: you have to like me before I'm entitled to to uh, tell you about Jesus. Yeah. The, you don't see that in Scripture at all. the The truth is what should be central. And as you said, it's not about a, a moral a list of moral mm-hmm. rules that you have to obey. But Christianity is about what Christ has done in order to redeem sinners. Right. And if you believe that, right. if you if you embrace Him as your Lord and Savior, uh, then you're saved. It's not, it's not about what you do to earn salvation. Right. It's about what Christ has done to provide salvation for us. And you, you just wouldn't get that from the
0: typical preacher today. Yeah. Let's uh get to the halfway point here, Phil. Chapter four of Jesus Unleashed, titled, This Man Speaks Blasphemies. In that chapter, John writes this, quote, here's a pattern you will notice, and I thought this was mind-blowing. Here's a pattern you will notice in almost every confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. In one way or another, his deity is always at the heart of the conflict, unquote. Talk about that, Phil. As as I read that sentence, I'm like, he's right. (laughs) It always comes down to a matter of Jesus's deity, doesn't it? Yeah, it it does. And, And I think probably the most
1: interesting a uh, place to trace that is is through the Gospel of John, starting around John chapter six. Mm-hmm. That's that famous incident where he feeds the five thousand, and then immediately, uh, because he 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 makes it clear that he's not there just to provide breakfast. That mm-hmm. you know he's not going to become their Messiah so that they have free food every day. They wanted to make him. They wanted to force him to be Messiah, mm-hmm. and when he basically said no to that, most of the crowd turned away. That was when he began to talk about eating my flesh, drinking my blood, mm-hmm. and, and it's as if he's purposely trying to offend them, mm-hmm. uh, because that exposed the f- the frailness of their the reasons for why they were following him. I was going to say their faith, and Scripture does say they They believed, but in a cursory way mm-hmm. they they had not really come to full faith in christ right. and by the end of that chapter, this multitude, five thousand that he fed, turn against him, right. and it's just a few people left, and he turns to them and says, "Do you want to go away too right. you know? yep so you see that that and that's the start of a series of events that John chronicles through you know chapter ten, really, or mm-hmm. further. Uh, where he—it's just one conflict, one public public conflict after another with the Pharisees, uh, and usually at the heart of it is. His deity, he, they they challenge him on the Sabbath. He says, "I'm Lord of the Sabbath." Mm-hmm. Uh, he talks about the bread from heaven and says, "That's me." Yep. Uh, he says, uh, "Before Abraham was, I am." That's the clearest sort of yeah, where he's he's declaring that he is God, mm-hmm. and and they take up stones to stone him. You know. Uh, he heals the the man born blind, and uh, they immediately excommunicate that guy and his parents from the temple yeah. so all of these conflicts have to do with the question of jesus' authority, and he 's claiming to be God, and so they want to put him to death for blasphemy. They see that as blasphemy, but they can't they can 't gainsay his miracles they 're they 're too obvious he heals a man born blind he heals people who've been lame from birth these are undeniable miracles they're nothing at all like what you see on charismatic tv today but but truly stunning works of god creative works he at one point in in john 9 there he spits on the ground and makes mud Mm -hmm. and puts it in the guy's eyes Mm -hmm. which is the opposite of what you'd think would be healing Put dirt in a guy's eyes uh but it, it, this sort of symbolizes his creative power as God. It's as if he did what the Lord did when he created man. He took, made him of the dust of the ground, made him new eyes. Uh, and so he publicly would demonstrate his his qualifications for claiming to be God. And the more he did that and the more he proved his deity, the more agitated and anxious the Pharisees became. Not because... Uh, Not because they didn't believe he was really God, uh, but because he was a threat to their power. And that that comes across really clearly in, I think, John chapter 11. It says they conspired together in secret how they could put him to death. And what they said was, what are we going to do with this guy? If we let him go, everybody's going to believe him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. So it was their political power that they were concerned about. Saving It wasn't even their religious convictions that drove them. It was this lust for power. And here's a guy who claims to be God and can prove it. And naturally, that's going to lead to conflict. And The typical evangelical today, this is, I think, John's point throughout the book, John MacArthur saying, the typical evangelical today thinks any kind of conflict is bad. Yeah. And if you get into a conflict, that proves you're bad. And yet Jesus... Clearly, throughout his ministry, from the first time he turned over tables in the temple till the, the very last, when he walks out of that temple and says, you know, this is your house now,
0: uh, he, all he did with the Pharisees ever was provoke conflict. You know what I found interesting about a lot of what you said is that as much as uh, Jesus' claims of deity uh, threatened the power of the Pharisees, uh, our acknowledgment of his deity threatens our power as well yes, at does. the heart level, doesn't it, Phil? Can right. you talk about that? Yeah, and, and of course, that's been a
1: uh, one of the conflicts that John MacArthur has been embroiled in from the beginning of his ministry. It's about the lordship of Christ. Right. We yes. Our fundamental confession as Christians is Jesus is Lord. If he's Lord, what does that make me? Right. It makes me his slave, basically. Right. And it means I have to obey him. Mm-hmm and uh again that goes clean contrary to this popular notion that Jesus is basically a superhero type buddy that we have right uh who does things to at our bidding and and you know we pray to him and he obeys us and and large numbers of evangelicals have utterly lost any grip on on the reality that Jesus is lord mm-hmm. and that means I'm supposed to obey him, right. not the other way around.
0: I was just thinking quickly of Luke six forty six, 46, um, where Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Exactly. Exactly. So, hey, Phil, thanks a lot. Let's pause right here. We're going to invite you to come back next week for the second half of our conversation on John MacArthur's book, Jesus Unleashed, here on the Truth Matters podcast.